feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. Now, this episode of Pod Save the People is dedicated to Bowdoin College, where I went to college. It's in Maine. It was an incredible experience, and I was just back because it was my 10-year college reunion. It's sort of wild to think that I've been out of college for 10 whole years. It feels like just yesterday I was visiting this beautiful campus for the first time, uh, taking a class about Nietzsche and Plato and the Bible and, uh, and reading um, about hooks for the first time. So, love Bowdoin. Everybody should check it out. If you're thinking about a college, check out Bowdoin. Incredible place. Now, the thing I'll say before we begin this episode, and this episode is packed, talking to Keith Ellison about the DNC, the future of the party, and also Hillary and Bernie infighting and the party stance on white rural voters and black women, and then Jimmy from the Town Hall Project, and obviously the news, is that people ask me all the time, what should I do? What can they do? And there's no simple answer to that. But one answer that's true for everybody is to start where you are. That Harry Tubman didn't call me and tell me what to do or make me an organizer. That I had to start where I was. And that's the story of any organizer. Is that you probably have an idea. You probably are thinking about an issue. But you're waiting for somebody to give you permission. You're waiting for somebody to tell you that that's the one issue that matters the most. And the reality is that there's so much to deal with. So you should do the thing right now that you think is the most important. That you actually already have some of the core skills about what it means to organize. That organizing at a truth is about mobilizing informal or formal networks for change or for an action. So when you know that family member who calls all the aunts and uncles, or maybe that family member is you, to get everybody to go do one thing, that is mobilizing an informal network for an action. And then organizing is just taking that and scaling it up for good. So start where you are. Now let's jump into this episode. Okay, so here we are with the news. So I'll start. It is not necessarily uh, news so much as it's a did you know? Did you know that the state's constitution in Oregon prevented black people from moving there? When Oregon joined the United States in 1859, it was the only state that forbade black people from working or owning property. And lawmakers lifted the ban in 1926. But when 20,000 African-Americans came during World War II for jobs in the shipyards, few landlords would rent to them. In the 1980s, the city was called the skinhead capital of the country. I didn't know that, so I thought I'd share because that was sort of wild to me. It's a good reminder that racism uh, and anti-blackness in particular is not just a Southern issue, um, but it is, quite frankly, um, uh, happens all across this country. And it's like deeply built into the fabric, right? Like it's not by happenstance. It's actually a part of a plan. It is not accidental. Racism is systemic. And it's in the constitutions, right? The state constitution. I mean, just changing these types of documents, it is. it takes a level of consensus that is really, really difficult to achieve. And so they just get baked in. Yeah. And in as much as laws like those are influenced by the culture, 
Um, you can imagine that even when laws are changed, culture doesn't shift, right? So landlords are not suddenly um, apt to rent to uh, Black folks or sell to prospective Black homeowners simply because the law is different. And you think about how long it took for the law to change, right? That yeah. by the time the law changed, there are generations of people who have benefited and generations of people who've been uh, negatively harmed, have been harmed by it, right? Who've suffered, right? Uh, and it doesn't, and, and one, you know, 10 years of a law change doesn't actually undo that. And nothing about the change was re- about redistribution, right? It was this idea of yeah. like, let's just pick up and move on. Now, in the past couple of days, Bill Maher on his show referred to himself as a house N-word. And this caused a media frenzy because there's been uh, rightful outcry about like, Bill Maher, you don't have the right to use the N-word, definitely not in this context. And remembering that you would actually have never been any type of enslaved person, that you might have been in the house, but you would have been one of the uh, owners in a house as a (laughs) privileged white man. Like you were not going to be anybody Uh. toiling and being in the house if you were enslaved was not necessarily like a, uh, that wasn't a good thing. They were still enslaved. And Uh, that is the piece that I think bothers me because if you, so one of the great defenses that has, I say great in air quotes, um, the defenses that has been very frequent over the last few days is it was just a joke, right? As if comedy is somehow a defense for racism, that is a, an excuse that has been thrown around um, for years. However, if you, even if you take this in the context of the joke, it is still problematic because what he was saying was, I don't work in the field. I'm too good to work in the field because I'm a house N-word. Um, and in fact, um, a lot of the depravity of um, transatlantic and American racism or, or slavery rather um, occurred just as much in the house as it did uh, in the field. Um, so when we think about um, enslaved people who are working in houses, we have to acknowledge women who were um, raped and who were um, sought after for their bodies against their will. So even in the context of the joke, it was deeply problematic because it asserts this idea that somehow being in the house was better, safer, um, and was not as inherently dangerous as it absolutely was. Besides the fact that it was just absolutely egregious and Bill Maher needs to be canceled. Yeah, and I feel like this conversation comes up in America every couple of years or so. Some white person says it. And it's like the same conversation every time where, you know, black folks, like our position is pretty clear. Like white folks, you don't say that term. It re-traumatizes and brings back, you know, the exactly what you just talked about, Brittany, the, the violence that that has come along with that term and that that term continues to evoke. And what is crazy to me is that every time that that argument is made, that we say this, white folks come back with, well, despite that, we want to intentionally use a term that harms <laughs> you. And we yeah. should have the right to be able to use a term that harms you. And, you know, one of the one of the things about whiteness is that it wants to be present everywhere, right? It wants to participate in every single thing. Uh, and this idea that there's some things that whiteness can't participate in has always been a challenge for it. Uh, it's also interesting, too, because Bill Mark came out and he acknowledged that it was wrong, right? But there's still some people defending him being like it was completely right. And it's like, well, he's even said it's wrong at this point. Uh, the question is, does the show get canceled or not? And I, and I think it should. It has been fascinating to see people say, that it's like, well, Bill Maher donated to President Obama and, and Bill Maher has dated black people before. And you're like, that that's not an yeah. excuse for 
racism and and having a platform, such a big platform uh, that allows these uh, words to be said and allows people to use them, like doesn't actually advance the work of equity or justice. It detracts from it in a significant way. And remember, Bill Maher is one host, right? We can we can find another comedian. He's not the only person who can have a show like this. He has a platform because he was given a platform. Brittany, your news? Um, both of my pieces of news are related to one another. I want to go in a slightly different direction than, than previous weeks, in part because I don't want all of the news that I had to say to be about that guy in the Oval Office. Um, two pieces of news that, news that were particularly significant in the African-American community this week, but also in other places, um, was one, the cancellation of a show called Underground on WGN America. The show is about exactly what you think it's about. Um, it's a dramatic uh, rendering of um, uh, escapes from um, from slavery, uh, including characters like Harriet Tubman, uh, fictional and real characters, um, people like Frederick Douglass, who is portrayed by John Legend, who's one of the executive producers of the show, was canceled after its second season by WGN America. Um, apparently, WGN America was bought, and they want to move in a different direction. In the same week, um, Gucci came out with their new line uh, and used designs that are easily and recognizably traced to a pioneer of hip-hop fashion named Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan um, uh, was a mainstay in New York City um, during the early days of hip-hop and created some really iconic looks that took um, kind of high-end fashion brands, so Louis Vuitton, Gucci, others, um, and really turned them on its head and created the kind of style that you see today. Um, and Gucci pretty directly borrowed from that. It didn't acknowledge that they borrowed from from Dapper Dan's uh, tradition and example and legacy until, quite frankly, the entity known as Black Twitter had a field day with it and, and made sure that Gucci could not ignore that. Um, but it has me thinking a lot about, and I know we talk about this a lot, we're going to have a show on it hopefully soon, about capitalism and what it means um, to reward Black genius um, in a system of this kind of commerce. Because right now we're just kind of told that we should be thankful for a part, thankful for a show, thankful for the homage that a fashion line might play, even if it doesn't put money in our pockets or put money toward the future um, discovery or development of the future Dapper Dans, right, or the future um, directors and writers of a show like like Underground. Um, so I, I hope that if you haven't heard of Underground, that you actually go and watch it online, that you treat about it because it's an important piece of our history. Um, and, and this show is, like many others, is making Black people and Black history much more accessible to the American public. Um, and I'm really hoping that, that Underground finds a new home. And I'm really hoping that um, pioneers of important Black art like Dapper Dan and Misha Green, who created Underground, are um, finding the kind of support that they deserve. So that's my news for this week. And what we know to be true is that uh, Black people have always been the, the definers of what is cool, and that has been exploited time and makers. time again. Dapper yeah. Dan is a, is a great example of it. Um, and Underground was doing incredibly well in this in this new regime that came to to own the company just decided to cancel it. It's hopeful that OWN or BT or somebody will pick it up because it was telling a story from a perspective that was very different. It wasn't it wasn't like the other shows. Um, and Dapper Dan, you know, it is hopeful. I don't know if you saw it, Brittany, but Gucci is now Gucci and Dapper Dan have have started to talk to each other. Yeah, I have. And that. I know there's a new there's a new president at Gucci, uh, Marco, and the head of PR there. I know them both and. Uh, and I know they're committed to this work. Sam? Yeah, so I have two pieces of news. Uh, the first one is the Trump administration. So a, a report from the Washington Post came out 
uh, a couple days ago that said that the Trump administration is planning to disband the Labor Department division that has policed discrimination among federal contractors for four decades. So they're closing the the agency that is in charge of actually ensuring that the companies that contract with the federal government uh, are not discriminating against people. Uh, and this is important because it is not the only, it's not an isolated incident. It is part of a broader strategy. And we saw this in policing uh, where, you know, they are rolling back efforts under the Obama administration to hold police accountable to uh, ensuring that people's civil rights are respected. And now this is happening in labor as well. Uh, pointing to a broader trend of dismantling the civil rights protections that really have been in place since the civil rights era. Uh, I think that's really frightening. Yeah, because it's not just um, labor and the Department of Justice. We're also looking at cuts to the civil rights department and the Department of Education and the EPA, right? So everything from environmental justice and protection um, for marginalized communities to labor protections and lots of things in between are in danger right now. So you're absolutely right. This is a trend. Um, that budget that came out of the White House is representative of a certain set of priorities, and it is very clear um, that the folks on this call and people like us are not a part of that prioritized group. It also is a reminder of how uh, how damaging Jeff Sessions can be in really in ways that seem small that people just don't pay attention to because there's so much other stuff happening. So people aren't paying attention, not because they don't want to, just because they don't know. So you think about what does it mean with the uh, with the memo that he wrote earlier, reversing the Obama administration's take on private prisons. Right. And and literally there's a line in that memo that says uh, that they need to use private prisons essentially to meet the future needs of the of the justice system. You're like, well, what does that even mean with the future needs? Uh, like you're already anticipating an increase in people in prison and you're going to yeah. create the conditions for that to happen. And you look at the civil rights offices being decimated is that it is at the federal level that the civil rights have actually been uh, watched the most in this country, that states have not done an exceptional job at that. And when you get rid of this infrastructure, they know that it'll take a very long time to put the infrastructure back uh, when this administration is gone. And it's these sort of insidious things. And it makes me think about how much stuff I don't know, right? Like how much is happening that like mm-hmm. the Washington Post or the New York Times or CNN or MSNBC hadn't, hasn't written about. So we'll have to stay tuned with what happens with Sessions. Yeah, I guess we can cross our fingers and just hope that when Comey testifies, everybody comes down in one fell swoop, <laughs> that it's Sessions and Trump and Pence and like the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, so I was going to say a couple of things. One, before I talk about the second piece of news, I think to your point, DeRay, around people don't realize, a lot of people don't realize, you know, what's going on behind the scenes and really how this will impact them. Um And what's fascinating is that, you know, we talk about the civil rights era and the Civil Rights Act and all of the legislation that that, you know, really took generations and and so much sacrifice to put in place to protect people's civil rights, particularly black folks. And a lot of that relies on the federal government being able to enforce those laws. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is that under the Trump administration, they have straight up refused to enforce those laws. They're dismantling the agencies that are charged with enforcing those laws. And so, you know, we we think about, you know, the 60s and all of those gains as permanent things. But in reality, they depend upon enforcement that this administration isn't even doing. And so in many ways, we're going backwards, you know, decades back, you know, when Jim Crow was allowed because nobody was because the laws weren't in place and the enforcement wasn't in place to prevent those things from happening, to prevent states from doing that. 
And that's what's so frightening is, is how far back this administration can actually pull us. So my second piece of news is something that I just learned about. It didn't get a lot of reporting that Trump recently signed a law, so passed through both chambers of Congress, that I think it's called, it's called the Law Enforcement Heroes Act. And what it does specifically is it prioritizes the use of federal funds uh, that, that are going to police departments to prioritize the hiring of veterans as police officers. Um, so this sailed through both chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate, unanimous consent, uh, and then got signed into law. And what's interesting about this is that, that, first of all, the DOJ has never studied whether or not hiring more veterans as police officers has an impact on making policing more violent, whether veterans as police officers are more likely to use excessive force, all of those things. But is going, but the government's going about hiring them anyway. And the second piece is that actually emerging research for the first time now coming out of the Marshall Project um, is showing that, in fact, this connection is true, that veterans in law enforcement are more likely to use excessive force, more likely to have complaints against them for using excessive force. Um, and so, you know, this is sort of happening under the radar, but we talk about police militarization and, you know, the use of, you know, MRAPs and tanks on the street, but it's also the, the personnel in the police departments. Uh, and what Trump is doing here is actually encouraging police departments to hire more veterans, which can have a direct impact on police violence, particularly if there aren't programs in place to mitigate and sort of uh, deprogram folks who are coming off the battlefield before they go into policing. Yeah, I mean, I think there is clearly a commitment that we owe to um, people who served up, who sign up for our armed forces, who um, take a, a risk and a sacrifice that a lot of us um, wouldn't or can't. Um, and so, you know, employment, access to education, ensuring that people have fair and equitable housing when they return um, is, is of really grave importance. Um, I don't think that that, though, means that we then have to go and potentially deepen a problem in our law enforcement, as you're saying, Sam, it's, especially if our training for law enforcement, as you know, nationally is not strong right now anyway. Um, policing a friendly community versus um, uh, being militarized uh, with supposed enemy combatants, those are two very different things. And so, um, like you're saying, Sam, if if our training as of right now isn't good, then why would we bring more people into the fold, veterans or not, quite frankly, um, before we have uh, shifted the way in which police officers are hired, trained, um, and held accountable in this country? Because those things have not happened at a massive scale. And Sam, you are right that this bill got so little attention in any mainstream press. It's called the American Law Enforcement Heroes Act of 2017. And like Sam said, the Marshall Project has done, has has written about um, some of the research about veterans in law enforcement. I'd encourage everybody to go read the feature article that the Marshall Project put out called When Warriors Put on the Badge. Uh, it was an incredibly well done piece. And it talks about uh, some of the data that shows that uh, veterans have higher rates of using force. So you look at in Boston, for every 100 cops with some military service, there were more than 28 complaints of excessive use of force from uh, 2010 through 2015. In Miami, based on data from 2013 through 2015, for every 100 veterans on the force, 14 complaints were filed. For every 100 officers without military service, only 11 complaints were filed. So you should definitely check it out. It's called uh, When Warriors Put on the Badge. That's the news, everybody. 
Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Representative Keith Ellison from the 5th Congressional District in Minnesota, where he's been elected since 2007. He sits on the House Financial Services Committee and the House Democratic Steering Committee, and he's also the Chief Deputy Whip for Representative Steny Hoyer. But the reason I'm talking to him today is because he's also the Deputy Chair of the Democratic National Committee, or the DNC. Listen up. Keith, thanks so much for being with me today on Pod Save the People. Pod Save the People, man. Good to be here with you. So, Keith, why are you at the DNC? Why are you the deputy chair at the DNC? I'm at the DNC for two basic reasons. One is Iran uh, decided to run right after, you know, the Trump victory. I ran because I, I believe that the Democratic Party needs to be a 50-state party, a 3,100-county party. We need to be engaging people all over the country, and we need to engage them every day. And I perceive the Democratic Party as a party that was active during the presidential year, but not much otherwise. And I perceive the DNC uh, to be a party that really kind of operated every four years. So I wanted to say we're going to move from a uh, a presidential party every four years to a every every race party every day all over the country. And you know, uh, after you know, I put my best out there and. You know, I didn't win, but because Tom and I, I think, share values, we both believe that we've got to be much more engaged at the grassroots level. We believe we got to campaign every state. He and I have been friends uh, working on everything from, uh, you know, fiduciary rule to overtime pay, to, uh, you know, wage theft. We had a great campaign. 
then when he asked me to be deputy chair, I, I just I was uh, happy to be part of the team because to me it's not about me, DeRay. It's about us, right? So I, I, you know I don't have to be the one who wins. I don't have to play quarterback. I'll play tailback, right? I'll play safety. I'll play whatever position that we need to play to win the game. Can you talk about some of uh, what is perceived to be the infighting within the party, right? right. It, it seems, you know, people joke about this idea of the, the left is eating itself and the specter of this giant that is the Trump administration that is uh, going full steam ahead. What what can we, do you think that's real? Do you think there's infighting? What can we do about the Bernie people and the Hillary people uh, that seem to be fighting? That's what some people argue. What's your take on that? Well, yeah, there's infighting. Is our infighting handled in a toxic, unhealthy way, or is it just a spirited exchange of ideas and we're going to come together? I think that, uh, I don't know, but I think it's a little bit more towards the productive kind of uh, in, you know, uh, internal contesting that needs to happen. There are debates that need to be had within the Democratic Party. You know, what is our relationship going to be uh, to, um, you know, the business community, to rural communities, to veterans? What's our relationship going to be with communities of color? Should we be an unapologetic advocate for racial justice, or should we soft-pedal that and try to, you know, water out differences uh, that people have had historically? This, these are not bad debates to have. They're good debates to have. And I'm going to tell you, if we don't debate these things, the debates will simply go elsewhere to be debated, right? And so I think that we need to say, look, we have two basic beliefs. One, the economy should work for everybody. And if you're black, for sure, we need to be addressing the racial wealth gap. If you're a worldwide, for sure, we need to invest in, you know, uh, fiber optic cable transportation. And, you know, we know that there's a, women earn less money. They pay more for basic goods. We know that, including health care and car repairs. So the economy should work for everybody. Then two, everybody has to be respected. You know, one of the things, you know, the conservative types have sort of made a joke out of the whole transgender bathroom debate. Uh, but that's unfortunate because, you know, people really, all they really, all folks want is respect, right? Women want respect. Seniors want respect. People of color want respect. And so I'm okay with the debates. I'm all right with it. All I say is that, you know, remember, that the fire, the circular firing squad, you know, can emerge quickly if we don't understand who's the real problem. If we don't understand that these, that this guy just got us out of the Paris Climate Accords. I mean, right? So we're going to fight each other. We're going to deal with him. This guy wants to take away health care from 24 million people. We want to fight with each other or do we want to deal with him? These are the questions that I continue and it will continue to pose because, you know, uh, yeah, there are internal fights. That's okay. But let's not lose sight of what's really going on. What do you say to the people who are like, you know, we tried everything, right? We we ran for office. We voted every year. We went to the city council meetings. We went to the hearings and nothing changed. So they've just said, like, the system doesn't actually work anymore. What do you say to those people? Here's what I say to them people. The Montgomery bus boycott started in 1955. There was no reason for anybody in that boycott to believe that they were going to be able to destroy Jim Crow segregation, which had existed for 100 years before. Oh, and what was before that? Slavery. Okay. So in 1955, if you look back historically, those folks, if, if anyone had a right to say nothing's going to change, they did. 
Yet they got out there and they fought, right? They got they built coalitions. They got everybody involved. And you know the my, the Voting Rights Act wasn't wasn't signed until 1965. That's 10 years later, right? And what they go through in the meantime and in between time, assassinations, murders, beatings, all kinds of crazy stuff. So the people who today tell me, well, you know, we've been working hard for a few years. I'm like, look, man, you know, do you love justice or not? You know, because if you do, don't tell me how long it takes. You're going to keep fighting no matter what. Now, my thing is this. The, the, the Democratic Party needs to prove its relevance, right? Mm-hmm. We need to be with the people fighting for, fighting for what's right out here. I don't believe people owe us anything. We need to prove to them that we're a vehicle worthy of their support. And what advice do you give to people who are thinking about running for office? Considering you've run for office many times, you're you're obviously in Congress. What's your advice to people? I say look down, not up. Before you go calling a bunch of city council members and, you know, to endorse you, work that neighborhood, work them doors, build power from the grassroots. And then the people who are already in power are going to be looking for you, right? Um, I, I say engage uh, your creative side. Find a new way to tell a story. I say uh, you should run for office. It's a noble thing to do. Understand that we are in an age when people on the, the what I call the social Darwinists, the right-wingers, all them people, they these people are hostile to representative democracy. They don't like it. They actively promote the idea that we need one strong man who alone, he can solve all our problems. They they even say it, right? And so I say, you know, stay close to the ground. Make sure that you're listening to the people. And then after you win, engage those folks who help you win to help you govern. That's my advice right there, man. Keep it on the grassroots. Make sure that when you walk through the grocery store in the district you're running in, you get stopped more. You know, people know who you are. You don't want you don't want to be that guy who represents people who can walk through the grocery store and nobody even noticed that you're there because that means you're disconnected. No, that's real. Now, let's talk about I know the DNC just launched um, Resistance Summer and I yep. am a part of the transition team for with you. Uh, for Appreciate you and Tom, that, so I know a little bit about it, but can you talk? Can you give us a brief update on what is Resistance Summer and what's the goal? Like, and how is this different or new, or is this the same old thing just repackaged? Well, first of all, let me tell you, it's absolutely new. Uh, you talk to anybody who's been around the DNC for a long time, and they'll tell you there's never been an intensive engagement, a focused engagement with voters and just Americans generally in the year preceding the 2018 midterm congressional elections, right? It's, it's a 90-day intensive engagement program. It has several days of action. We had uh, days of action on, on June 3rd. I'll describe a little bit of that. We'll have, we're going to have a national canvas this coming weekend. We want people to be a part of that. And so uh, we'll, we, our capstone is going to be Labor Day. But I got a feeling, and I've been hearing from the little birdies out there, that we're going to move from resistance summer to democracy fall. You know what I mean? So we ain't going to stop. Now, you say, what are the goals? First goal, get reacquainted with the people we expect to support us. That's goal number one. Mm -hmm. Second goal, replenish our data so that our voter file 
is is up to date. We're replenishing our data. We're making sure that data really works so that when people get to the door, they can address somebody with their name. We're asking the knockers to say, well, what's your email? How can we stay in touch? We're asking them to say, we know what issues are on your mind. How, and then share information. Um, and then taking that data down and then feeding it to a central repository so we can know where our people are at. Number three, it's helping us just, if you're in touch with the people, you know what's important for the people. One of the debates we've had, and you, you're well aware of this, is we said, should we go left or should we go right? Should we go, uh, should we reach out to the rising American electorate of people of color and women, or should we go to white rural non-college men? Well, the answer is we need to be working on all fronts, right? And so how can you work right. on all fronts? Don't you have limited resources? Answer, not really, because people live everywhere, right? So we're asking people to knock all in their communities and to figure out what the people are really concerned about. Maybe rural Kentucky and southern Ohio have a lot in common when it comes to trying to make a living with people living in the South Bronx. I got a feeling that we're not as separate as we might think. But how do we know that and speak authoritatively? Presence presence. So that's number three. Number four, we need to create, we need to signal to the move-ons, the indivisibles, swing left, knock every door, all these groups that are so awesome. We need to prove to them that we really are with them. How do we do that? Well, we're, we're, we're working in concert, right? You know, we're not sitting back, you know, huddled up in the, in the, in the Democratic Party office. You know, no, we're out there with you, knocking with you, engaging with you. And so and we're, we're trying to show and prove and demonstrate our commitment physically by being there. And then the, the, the next thing is we, we want to uh, be able to galvanize the energy that's out there amongst many people and, and, then, and then just sort of like slingshot it into 2018, right? And then, of course, the next thing is we want to win where we can now. There's a lot of municipal elections going on now. Minneapolis is having the municipal elections now. And so uh, at our resistance summer in Minneapolis, we, took, uh, we put, picked our DFL-endorsed candidates, and we asked them to be the main spokespeople at our resistance summer kickoff and because we want to win these city uh, elections as well. And we also want to um, win these specials. Like, you know, you know we, we were competitive in Texas. We were competitive in, 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 in Montana. But we need to win in Georgia. We need to win. Uh, in, in South Carolina if we can, and we need to win in state, statewide elections in New Jersey and Virginia. If you want to get involved, you can text the word RESIST, R-E-S-I-S-T, and you can text it to, text that word to, 43367. And no matter where you are, you can be involved in what we're doing, and we want to really encourage that. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace. Yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Now, there are people, Keith, who um, who have concerns or who just have questions about uh, Hillary's recent statements about the DNC, yeah. uh, who also question, you know, your support of Bernie remaining an independent, or they they feel like you keep supporting Bernie being independent as opposed to being a member of the party. And how can somebody who's supposedly outreach not be actually not be a formal member of the party? What do you? What's your response about Hillary's recent sure. critiques about the DNC and and Bernie's uh, status as an independent and not necessarily a Democrat to some people? Yeah, well, let me just keep it as real as possible. With regard to Hillary Clinton, so, uh, you know, I I can't, and neither can Tom really talk about the real detailed elements of what happened and who and what, because we didn't even start until February 25th of this year. She's talking about stuff that happened during her race. I was not at the DNC, neither was Tom. And so, but I can tell you this. Here's what I can tell you. That, you know, during the presidential elections, all the money flows to the presidential. So I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the DNC didn't have the kind of uh, money that um, she would have expected, because the dollar flows to the presidential candidate. Also, you know, look, Tom and I ran as, you know, we as reformers. Jamie Harrison ran as a reformer. You know, the fact is, is that uh, Organizing for America well-intentioned as it was, really sucked a lot of energy and life out of the DNC. We are rebuilding now. But the fact is, did it happen? There's a general consensus that it did. And from what I can see and from what a lot of people can see, you know, we were not as strong as we should have been, certainly not as strong as we should have been all over the country, certainly didn't have the grassroots focus, certainly didn't have the 50 states focus. So, I'll just put it like that, man. Do we need to get our act together? Yeah. Is there a new spirit? Absolutely. Are we committed to campaigning everywhere? Absolutely. But uh, but but is that has that always been the case? Well, according to Hillary Clinton, the answer is no. Now, on the, on the issue of uh, Bernie, here's how I look at that. We're trying to get people to vote for us. That's how we're going to win elections. Now, if those people are inspired by Bernie, we still want them to vote for us. If they're inspired by Hillary Clinton, we want them to vote for us. And at the end of the day, I am having trouble figuring out why it's so very important that Bernie not remain an independent as he is. Because as long as he's supporting our candidates, as long as he's caucusing with the Democrats, as long as he's for what we're for, I can't figure out why it's such a big deal to some people. And here's the other reality. Bernie Sanders is 75 years old. He's been the mayor of a major city in Vermont. He's been a congressman. He's been a senator. He's done it his way and been successful. Who am I to go to him and say, no, nah, you, got, you, got you can't do it the way you've been doing it? I think people would say, though, that he, that, that he sort of playing all both sides, right? That he gets to sort of be an independent and not be sort of beholden or in line with the Democrats' message because he is taking the stance as being an independent. And again, I'm not saying that's what I'm necessarily saying, but that's what I yeah. think people are, are pushing. Yeah, but, but, but I, and I appreciate that because I've heard that too. And, and so my answer 
is that I don't I don't really see the heart of the problem because we're trying to get people who vote and cast ballots to support us. Some of them will be independents. Some of them will be moderate Republicans. Some of them will be dyed in the wool Democrats, yellow dog Democrats. Some of them will be there'll be a range of people and they'll do and they'll support us for a range of reasons. But if you focus on the electorate, the voter, then what Bernie Bernie's party affiliation I don't I think is just less important. I mean, Bill, Bernie can filled got 7500 people to fill a stadium in 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 Omaha, Nebraska. He got people to fill stadiums in Maine, he got them to fill stadiums in Oklahoma and all over the country. I mean, don't we want those people supporting us? Keith, who Who's on the bench to be our nominee in 2020? Or what should we be thinking yeah. about when we think about 2020? Well, well, here's the thing. Here's what I really want to encourage people to think about in terms of 2020. Think in terms of redistricting. Think in terms of the census. This is absolutely needs to be on everybody's mind. But understand, you can't do well in 2020 unless you do well in 2018. And that means increasing participation. 90 million people who were eligible to vote, didn't vote. Some of them didn't vote because they were too busy. Some didn't vote because they were discouraged and beleaguered and don't believe in voting. And some of them didn't vote because their votes were suppressed and they were absolutely blocked, but they did want to vote. And some people, you know, know, whatever, weren't reached out to. We need to go worrying about that. We got to get everybody who cares about this country and who believes that Trump is leading it in the wrong way to figure out how to get people involved who have not been involved. If we do that, we're going to win big. We're going to wipe them out. Are you saying it's too early? You think it's too early to focus on the people for 2020? I don't think it's necessarily too early. I just think that it's an interesting conversation over a cup of coffee, but it's it's the most it's not anywhere close to the most consequential thing. Right. So so the most so the thing is. Here's here's the thing with with me, DeRay, you know, you can get the most exciting person. But if you depend upon that person to to win the election for us, then we're 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 not building the institution as much, right? We need to think about institution building and infrastructure building. We need to think about strengthening ourselves at the city level, the county level, the state level. We need to build up our our party institutions. We need to strengthen our ally relationships and our partnerships. You know, the people you were mentioning who may not want to be uh, call themselves a Democrat, but who generally vote for Democrats. You know, we need to build our relationship with them. And if we do that, then, you know, whoever, you know, whoever in, emerges out of that primary process, you know, will, they'll, they'll win. And they'll probably be, uh, and, and our activism will make for better candidates too, right? Because, you know, um, the, the, the reality is that if we uh, the, the, the candidates have to respond to the people. If there's more people, more active people, more engaged people, then our, our candidates are going to have to reflect that. And so you're more likely to get a candidate who's going to address the most pressing issue of the day, and their personal charisma becomes less of a factor. Although everybody, every candidate who's going to win is going to have a little bit of zip, you know. But, but I think that the real issue is a wide-awake, alive movement from sea to shining sea that um, really empowers the average voter, whether they're on campus, whether they're in the factory or the farm, no matter where they're at. And and that is going to be the thing that's going to turn the trick. 
out of that process, who's going to come? I don't know. I think, you know, Elizabeth Warren would be a great candidate. I think Bernie would be a great candidate. I think Cory Booker has been, you know, name has been floated quite a bit. Uh, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, her name's out there. Deval Patrick, very sharp guy. But guess what? At this time in uh, at this in in twenty in two thousand four, who knew that a state senator from Illinois was going to be the president? Right? There's somebody out there who who we don't know. Right? There's somebody out there who hey, we haven't talked to yet, but who was killing it wherever they're at. And I want just I just want the Democratic Party to be absolutely fair, absolutely neutral, no favorites whatsoever. Let the process work how it will. And we're going to end up with the best candidate and we're going to we're going to win. And we're going to not only are we going to win, we're going to win for American people. We're going to restore the health care. We're going to be, take climate action, deal with environmental justice like stuff in Flint. We're going to take care of the business that people need taken care of. Anything to look for with Comey's testimony on Thursday? Yeah, um, Comey's. So the, the heart of the matter with Comey is this. You know, did the person who occupies the White House today engage in collusion and collaboration uh, to with a foreign hostile power to uh, manipulate the outcome of an American election? In other words, did Trump basically subvert and attack democracy in order to become president with the assistance of Russia or whoever? And those are the key questions. Now, what does Comey have to do with it? Well, if you didn't do anything, why are you firing the one person who's investigating you? If you didn't do anything, why are you calling the person investigating you a nut job to the country that you are suspected to have collaborated with? These are going to be the key questions. You know, and Comey is known to take copious notes. Um, and so he, I think there's going to be some things to, to hear. Why would Trump tweet out, you know, if you leak against me, you better hope there's no tapes? You know, why would he say that? Literally trolling the guy. You know, these are interesting questions. You know, who knows what's going to be said? I just got a feeling that there's got to be a reason why Trump was trolling him, literally trying to bully and intimidate him. And uh, I'm actually curious to know what's behind all of that. One thing I will say is that some folks think, oh, this is just Democrats and Republicans fighting with each other. No, it's not. This is about whether or not we're going to be a democratic society. This is about whether the American people are going to select their leaders or whether a hostile foreign power is going to do that. This is big stuff. What's your take on Kushner's uh, security clearance so far? Kushner doesn't have any business with a security clearance. He needs to have it stripped. He shouldn't be in the White House at all. He is a relative. He should have been excluded by any, I mean, whether it's legally or by, or whether it's just like by, by custom, his proximity to the president in terms of family relation should make him ineligible to work as an employee in the White House. It's an outrage that he's there. And you look at his portfolio, he's in charge of everything. Middle East peace, he's doing <laughs> deals with the Saudis. You name it, he's doing it. And now we know he's trying to set up a back channel. Man, they skewered Hillary Clinton for a private email server, which wasn't even illegal to do. And this dude's trying to have a back channel with the people who were with a hostile foreign power. I mean, it's truly outrageous behavior. He never should have been there. But let's add a few more. Carl Icahn has no business connected to the White House, advising the president the way that he is. He needs to be treated like a private citizen, but he has a particular role to play. You know, the, you know uh, Ivanka you know, shouldn't be anywhere close to the president. She should be the president's daughter 
first family, and that's their role, right? Um, you know, but this this thing about how they're in there, they're managing policy, they're taking on, they're essentially employees of the federal government, yet they don't have the same level of accountability. And it's very clear that, uh, you know, the nepotism is a, is a very, very serious problem. So my, my, and, and, and so my opinion is that uh, these, these people both need to be excluded uh, uh, because of these reasons. And uh, they're part of the whole basket of reasons why Trump is not a legitimate president, in my view. Why? Because one, maybe he got in there through the assistance of a hostile foreign power. Two, he lost the popular vote. Three, he's already violated the Constitution, the Emoluments Clause. And uh, the list just keeps on stacking. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten that you've carried with you over the years? You know, uh, one piece of advice that I've gotten and I've carried with me over the years is from a guy named Paul Wellstone. He was a U.S. senator from Minnesota, tragically died in a plane crash. And, you know, what Paul told me is, is that, look, man, you know, the power, you know, emerges from the people. You stay close to them, you're going to be able to represent them in in an active engagement. He also said to me something that I heard even before that, which is also good advice, which is that people don't expect you to always be successful, but they do expect you to always be faithful. A woman named Mary Ellen O'Tremba told me that. She was a state representative from Minnesota. And, uh, you know, another piece of advice uh, uh, that I that I got that I always live by is make sure you take care of yourself. Don't burn yourself out. You know, you can put your whole self into this thing, but you better watch your health because the movement needs you. And, you know, you need to be able to stay in good mental and physical stead so you can be effective. And, uh, you know... Um, you know, that's that's advice that I got from a woman named Nellie Stone Johnson, who was a black woman, un- trade unionist, um, who uh, helped start the Democratic Farming Labor Party uh, in Minnesota. People know about Hubert Humphrey's role. Not that many people know about Nellie Stone Johnson's role. But she told me, she said, boy, you need to take care of yourself. Keith, the DNC has gotten pushback about engaging, not engaging black women as a as a constituency, thoughtfully yet. What's your response to that? Well, my response is that black women are the heart and soul and the backbone of the Democratic Party. They're the most reliable voting uh, group that we have, and they deserve to be uh, focused on, listened to, engaged, and offer leadership in the Democratic Party, you know. And that's why, you know, we, uh, we, we, I'm, I'm real proud to have you know, people like Gilda um, Hunt, Cobb Hunter, who is uh, head of the Southern Caucus. You know, she leads that effort. She's a state legislator in South Carolina. Lottie Shackelford's head of the Women's Caucus, not the Black Women's Caucus, the Women's Caucus. You know, also we've got Karen Carter-Peterson, who's head of our voter engagement and voter protection effort at the DNC. She's a DNC officer. But, you know, we still got to do more. I mean, Black women, uh, we need the leadership of Black women in this party. And so I thought the letter was... Um, was uh, something that was was good criticism. We need to take it. We need to listen to it. We need to engage it. And we need to, uh, th- and, and so let me just tell you this. In this rebuilding phase, D-Ray, you know, uh, the Democratic Party officers and leadership and Democratic DNC members should, should, should be very careful not to be defensive about people who bring us um, news about how we could be better and how we need to be more effective. I think we need to be open to it. Put it into work. 
because at the end of the day, if they tell us something that we need to know, that's going to be more effective. And if, you know, the, the, the letter that, you know, those black women wrote to us about including and advancing the leadership of black women is, is good advice and we need to take it in and, as opposed to just saying, we're already doing it. No, 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 no. We, we hear you. We believe you're right. Let's get a program together to make sure that we can effectuate those goals because we share those goals. Okay, I think that's it, Keith. Anything else that you want to talk about? Well, you know, DeRay, as we sign off, man, I just want to say, you know, if folks want to get involved in Resistance Summer, we need them. We want to encourage them to do that. Young people, not so young people, we need folks involved. Hey, let's go do this. Let's get out there and engage our neighbors, man. It's the way to do it. Cool. Thanks, Keith. Got it, buddy. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And now Jimmy from the Town Hall Project joins me. The Town Hall Project is the infrastructure behind all of the people that you've seen on the news and on social media going to town halls. And I won't give away everything we talk about, but I do want to highlight a few things before we start. Did you know that 193 members of Congress have not held a single event in 2017? And that when breaking that out by party, the results are fascinating. By percentage, 54% of Republicans have not had a town hall event this year compared to just 14% of Democrats. And 63% of Republican senators have not had a town hall event compared to just 25% of Democratic senators. Part of democracy is showing up and being present so the people that elected you can hold you accountable and ask questions and push you. Got to be there. Now, listen to our conversation, learn, and maybe I'll see you at a town hall soon. Okay, Jimmy, it is good to invite you to Pod Save the People to talk about the Town Hall Project. Awesome. Excited to be here. So can you talk a little bit about yourself before we get into the Town Hall Project? What led you uh, to become an activist in the digital space in light of the Trump administration? Yeah, I think I was in the same boat as a lot of people trying to figure out what we can do to uh, push back and, and what we can do to uh, you know, get more people involved. And so looking for ways people could do that locally. I think we saw with a lot of the protests and the marches, um, you know, people coming together in a lot of these places, but how could people go back to their communities um, and, and do something there that's productive and, you know, take advantage of all this energy and enthusiasm we are seeing. Uh, so the, the natural place to look was events uh, with elected representatives um, near them. So that was, uh, what we decided to, to put together a Google Doc so uh, people could could find events near them and make their voices heard, and they kind of just evolved from there. And are you have you been are you like a lifetime activist? Is this like something you've been doing for uh, five years, twenty years, or were you called to this in the wake of Trump? Yeah, so I, I've been uh, I've been an organizer my my whole life since I graduated from college. Um, issues or uh, you know electoral campaigns. Um, 
So it's something I'm, I'm used to and uh, have a passion for. And uh, this time around, it was people who I've, I've known my whole life who've never been involved were, were asking what they could do and uh, what what they could do to get involved. And so uh, that's kind of what spurred this this idea. Cool. Now let's jump into the Town Hall Project. What is the Town Hall Project? And, and I say that because a lot of people have seen uh, images of people at Town Halls, videos, and have wondered like how people got the information. I think a lot of people think about um, many groups and maybe don't know about the Town Hall Project. So what is it? Yeah, yeah. So we are a group of, uh, of folks from across the country. Um, you know, there's 100 or so volunteers every week that uh, look for these events. Members of Congress try to put as many walls around them typically where they'll post them a day or two ahead of time. They'll, you know, you'll have to RSVP to get a ticket online through their website. It'll be through a curated list. Um, you know, there are these things that they, they do to try to make sure that their crowd is as friendly as possible. Um, and what we want to do is make sure that everyone who, you know, has a question for their, their representative or is concerned about something, you know, that they're, they're discussing in Washington, that they can get there and, 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 and make sure that their voice is heard. So what we do is we collect all these events, um, compile them, put them on our website. And so all these different groups that, you know, have, have groups on the ground that they're organizing can, can find them um, and alert, alert their members so that folks can show up. We also have on our website automatic email notifications. Um, you know, even this conscious activist can, can miss an event if it's uh, announced the night before uh, in a low-key manner. So what we do is uh, send emails to everyone with a zip code in that district so that they can get out. And what's the website? Uh, townhallproject.com. So you are like the hub right now for the town halls all across the country at the federal level. Is that correct? Yes, uh, that's correct. We have all uh, all events, uh, Democrats, Republicans. We also have office hours um, and, and different things like that. So folks can, can show up. We have teletown halls, different things like that. So um, people can find events near them. So two things. Why town halls? Like, why is this a lever that that you've invested in, that you think people should invest their time in? And then what have you learned about town halls since this has started? Or what have you learned about the way uh, congressmen engage with their constituents? Yeah. Uh, the first question is, is town halls, I think, you know, since the country's been found that have been an, an opportunity to uh, let everyone uh, have have a chance to, to have access to their representative. I think we see a lot of uh, members who are you spend a lot of time in D.C. or have fundraisers uh, who are constantly around around folks like that, but it gives you know the common the common voter everyone can can show up and, and ask a question uh, ideally. So it's a good venue for that. It also um, requires them to come and listen to the folks that they're voting on behalf of. So you know it's easy to look at stats and look at um, you know hear hear reports, but when you actually have to have a conversation with somebody face to face who maybe losing their health care or maybe know somebody who's, who might be being deported. It, it adds another human element to, to the legislative process that I think is important uh, for members of Congress to, to hear from. Um, as far as what I've learned is uh, it's been shocking how many members of Congress uh, avoid these types of events or don't, don't hold them at all. Um, I think last recess in April, we saw 20% of Republican members holding town halls, public events in district, and, and 40% of, of Democrats, um, which is, you know, a lot lower than I would have ever anticipated. That's interesting. And what advice do you have for people who might be going to their first town hall and have been sort of inspired 
to take a different approach to pushing back against unjust things? Yeah, I think one thing we would just say is be confident and tell your story and make it personal. I think as organizers, we know that those face-to-face conversations are, are, are the most valuable and that, um, you know, expressing how, you know, certain legislation or certain decisions that are being made uh, far away are impacting you and your life uh, can really make a difference. And I think that's what we've seen coming out of these events so far uh, are these stories about uh, folks who are, are impassioned one way or the other, if they have a pre-existing condition or, or anything like that. Uh, those are the things that are kind of cutting through uh, today. And we encourage folks just to, you know, be themselves, be confident. This is your right as a constituent to have this conversation, have this dialogue and, and tell them, you know, how, how what they're doing impacts you and your life. Jimmy, is there is there any effort to do this at the local and state level? So we know the federal government is an has a lot of impact on people, right? I think one of the interesting things that has come up over the past, I don't know, 150 days of Trump is it sort of disrupted this idea that all politics is local, that like we know a lot of politics is local. We also know the federal government has a huge impact on people's lives. And I think people are seeing that in a way that they did not anticipate. Uh, With that said, there are a lot of things that happen at the state and local level that go unnoticed. Like people don't go to the community meeting just because, like, they literally didn't hear about it, not because people don't care. Uh, is there any effort to do this at the state and local level? Yeah, it's something we've, we've definitely looked at and, and want to do down the road. Uh, if we can, you know, raise the, the resources and build up the capacity. We would love to put these events on our calendar, as we know, you know, a few people showing up to a, a city council meeting may uh, may make a, a huge, huge difference. And we know that in state and local uh, governments. That's where a lot of decisions are made that impact folks' day-to-day life, and, and they may even be more difficult to find uh, out about. So we'd love to do that down the road, and, and hopefully we'll we'll get to that point. And again, tell people where they can find uh, the Town Hall Project and how they can sign up to, to get notified when their either Town Hall is or when there's a, a conference call with their, with their congressperson or if there's a webinar. Yeah, absolutely. It's at townhallproject.com. Uh, pretty simple. And you can sign up for events there. Follow us on Twitter at, at Town Hall Project. And uh, we'll uh, do our best to, to keep updating folks when uh, events are hosted. Cool. Well, Jimmy, thanks for joining us today. And again, encourage everybody to go to townhallproject.com. It is one of many ways to be involved. We know that protest at its root is this idea of telling the truth in public. And town halls are a, an important way that you can tell the truth in public with your congressperson. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining this week of Pod Save the People. See you next week. And make sure that you tell a friend to download the podcast and that you rate the podcast wherever you get it, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. See you next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.